Exodus chapter 32 verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man you who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know as has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger, and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented of the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Here ends the Bible reading for this morning. Good morning, everybody. Well, this is a little bit weird being up here in my office rather than downstairs in church. I mean, there are some things that are totally alien to our life experience, aren't they? Like a global virus and having to do church like this. Others, however, seem inevitable. They just seem to follow on naturally, like being Welsh and loving rugby, or being a child and liking sweets and ice cream. Or how about new parents acting as if their children are the most wonderful, amazing, adorable human beings ever to go goo goo gaga and toddle the earth. Now don't log out, new parents. I know how you feel. I've been there. I did exactly the same thing. But what about being human? and worshipping idols. How does that seem to us? I suspect, as we read Exodus 32 earlier, it was tempting to view Israel's lapse into paganism with a measure of patronising contempt. Those poor primitives, we might say. What were they thinking? To worship a golden calf? It's nuts. Have you ever done anything like that? I don't think many of us have ever done anything like that. Yet, I want to suggest to you this morning that contemporary Western society is just as much wedded to idolatry as the Israelites were 
perhaps even more so. Our intellectual development hasn't led to the abandonment of the golden calf. We've simply exchanged it for other more subtle forms of sacred cow. So as we dive into this chapter of the Bible, let's not do so as if it's a million miles away from where we live today. No, let's use this as a chance to get real, to get real about the hundreds of mini gods and goddesses that we give our love and devotion to day in and day out. I'm going to ask four questions of this passage. And the passage is going to give us four answers back that I think is going to help us see how this affects us and how we should respond to it. Let me ask the first question. What motivates idolatry? And let me give a one word answer. Insecurity. The feeling of insecurity. Have a look with me at Exodus 32 verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. You see, the people are getting jittery. Moses, their leader, has been gone a long time. We read in Exodus 24 that he's up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. And anything could have happened in that time. Uh, let's face it, it wasn't a very safe place to be. It was more like a smoking volcano than a mountain. And so they go to Aaron, Moses's second in command. And you can feel the force of their argument as they, they crowd around him and say, look, Aaron. We can't just hang around here forever, waiting for Moses to come back. Do something. If he isn't going to lead us, make gods for us, to go before us, to lead us, to make us feel safe and secure. You see, facing an uncertain future, Aaron and the people attempt to establish their own security apart from God. That's what idolatry is, folks. And if you want to find out what your idols are, I just need to ask you, where do you look for your security? And once we found where to look, then I found your sacred cow and you found mine. Or to put it another way, let me ask you, what one thing, if it was taken away from you, would make your world fall apart. I guess many of us feel at the moment like our world is falling apart. And I hesitate to say this, but maybe that's because this global pandemic is threatening our idols and it's helping us to see that the things we worship as a culture are so fragile, so frail and fleeting. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying yippee, Praise the Lord for COVID-19. But I do think that where we look for, for our security as individuals, as a society, are being revealed day by day to us and are being fundamentally shaken. So if we were to ask, 
one another. What would give you peace of mind at a time like this? I, I guess we'd get a whole range of answers, wouldn't we? Freedom might be one of them. Freedom of movement, freedom to meet. Job security. Some money in the bank. Well, that money that I have stashed away in the bank, that gives me peace of mind. Oh, knowing my holiday will go ahead. That would give a crumb of comfort. The pasta and the toilet roll that I've stockpiled. The school's reopening after Easter. That would, or at the very least, by May half term, that would uh, be really helpful because otherwise someone's going to die, the kids get it or I get it. My health. The health of my family. A vaccine for this virus. So we could all go back to the way things were and relax again. And feel secure. These are the gods. Exodus 32 verse 1. These are the gods which go before us. They're the things that we, we, we long for, that we grasp after, that we hold on to, to make us feel safe and secure. Life is so uncertain. I, I guess we feel that at this moment, maybe more than at any point in our lives so far. And so if we've put our trust in anything but God, then we will find that things are unravelling for us at the moment. We will find things come untethered. They always come untethered if we move away from God and the storms of life hit. Why do we worship false gods? It's insecurity. And we are so insecure that we will grasp after any idol going. Here's the second question. How is idolatry expressed? Answer, the abuse of imagination. Please look at verses um, two to five with me of Exodus 32 again. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf and they said these are your gods O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt when Aaron saw this he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord I wonder if you know the story of the little boy who was painting a picture and his teacher comes up to him and says what are you painting and he says i'm painting a picture of god and the teacher says don't be silly no one knows what god likes to which that says oh they will do they will do when i've finished painted my picture now i know i know that's a it's a really cheesy story but that is exactly what aaron is doing here he makes up in his own imagination a picture of god and the key here is he is not knowingly committing idolatry, not consciously of committing it. You see, Aaron was far too committed to the God of Moses to ever consider worshipping pagan deities. No, 
This was intended to be an image of the one true God. That's why we read in verse 5 that Aaron built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there is to be a feast to, to who? To Baal? To Allah? To Krishna? No, that's not what it says, is it? To the Lord. We're trying to do this situation is if we were to ask, if get into a time machine and go back and ask Aaron whether he'd abandoned the Lord. He would, have, he would have been appalled at that for He would have gone, no, heaven forbid. He was not breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods but me. No, he was breaking the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or earth beneath. You shall not misuse your imagination in this way to bow down and serve them. That was Moses uh, sorry, that was Aaron's sin. Now let's just relate this. I, I think it's massively uh, relatable to us, isn't it? I mean, have you ever heard somebody say something along the lines of, well, I like to think of God like this. And then they go on to describe God as they imagine him to be. My, my God is a God of love. He would never send anyone to hell. Not my God, never. My God doesn't mind whether I'm part of a church or not. He's perfectly happy with me just to worship him in any way I feel fit. My God believes in free love. He wouldn't want to suffocate anyone with marriage or sexual self-control. But the true God, the God of the Bible says, you must not make up gods to suit your own personal taste. You may not dream up what I am like because I've revealed myself to you in my word, by my spirit. Think of it like this for a moment. I've often been asked over the years how we can really know that God is there and what he's like. And so I usually answer that question with a question by saying, well, let's just say, well, if I was to say to you that I have a brother, how can you know that I do? And if I do, what he's like? How would you answer that question? Well, let's go through a few options. Perhaps I could uh, show you a photograph of, of him. Uh, or I could, uh, I could phone him up on the phone and uh, let you speak to him. Or I could show you letters and cards that he's sent me over the years. The only way you can really know that he's real is if he was to walk into the room where you're sitting right now and he was to introduce himself to you and say, hi, my name's Stuart, I'm Kenneth's brother. Nice to meet you. You see, we can only really know anyone when they make themselves known to us, when they reveal themselves to us. And folks, Christianity is a revealed religion. Not of human speculation, but of divine declaration. Or to put it another way, theology is a science, not an art. It is based on the study of data. And here is the data. It's in this book. That's why we study this book. Rather than compose our own. Because in this book are stories of God stepping through the door of human history, 
revealing himself to people down through the ages until he fully and finally ultimately comes in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, and shows us that he's really there and shows us what he's really like and shows us how we should really live. So I can no more say, I like to think of God like this, than you can say to me, I like to think of you with ginger hair. Or I can say to you, I like to think of you all sitting there watching this in your dressing gowns, because it's not true. I don't have ginger hair. And I'm pretty sure that many of you will have had the common decency uh, to actually manage to get dressed this morning. But you see, when we put God's word on one side and start to imagine for ourselves what God is like, we step into the realm of idolatry, don't we? And if we insist on doing that, like Aaron and the Israelites did, then we must live with the consequences. And that brings us to our third question. What are the results of idolatry? Oh man, there are so many and they are catastrophic. So hold on to your seats while I try and run you through them in breakneck speed. Number one, idolatry leads to debauchery. That's in uh, there at the end of verse six. Uh, it's hard to see because it's a pretty tame translation. But the word for play there is not the kind of play that your preschool kids get up to. It has strong overtones of sexual immorality. Secondly, in verse seven, next verse, the Lord says that they have corrupted themselves. And all the language that follows in the rest of this chapter of them being stiff-necked or uh, them running wild makes them sound much more like wild animals acting on impulse rather than human beings made in the image of God. You see, indulge in idolatry and immorality and we become less than we were truly made to be. And thirdly, verse 10, God is rightly angry with this. And fourthly, and here's where it gets really uncomfortable, as in verse 27, God expresses his anger in judgment. And, and folks, what follows are some of the most disturbing verses in the whole of the Bible as an execution squad is formed. And 3,000 people die in one day. And then fourthly, God sends a plague in verse 35 on the survivors. I know, a plague. We'll get back to that. But if you're anything like me, for now, you're still reeling from the execution squad and, and thinking, what is going on here? What kind of a God is this that you can do this kind of thing? And I guess one of the reasons our, our stomach churns at this is because, well, Rightly, we know how valuable all human life is. But I think the other reason for our disgust is that we have forgotten what the Bible says over and over and over again about sin. Like what it says in Romans 6 verse 23, which tells us that the wages of sin is death. 
like us, God had given the Israelites life as a gift, not a divine right. He breathed life into them and given all of the wonderful things of his creation to enjoy. And they enjoyed them apart from they ended up slaves in Egypt and God rescued them from there. And then he saved them from the pursuing, ruthless Egyptian army that went after them by, by parting the Red Sea open and, and creating a way for them to escape. And then he fed them and watered them in the wilderness. He, he saved their lives time after time after time. And yet here they are, still failing to trust him, still seeking security from idols instead of him, indulging in immorality and refusing to repent. Because that's the other thing that we need to realise here. It is God, it's it's that God has given them so many opportunities to turn back to him and seek his forgiveness. What's the second half of Romans 6 verse 23? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's thought that Moses led anything between 60,000 and 140,000 people out of Egypt and through the wilderness. So clearly if 3,000 fell, that's, that's a tragedy. But it means that tens of thousands who also deserve to die were spared by God's mercy that day. And folks, I can't say whether the coronavirus outbreak is a plague sent by the Lord I read verse 35 of the thought certainly pops into my head, but I can't say that for sure. But surely we should hope and pray that God uses this time as a wake-up call for so many in our society who are worshipping idols and sleepwalking into final judgment when Jesus comes back at the end of time to wrap up human history. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia Books once wrote, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Suffering is not always, but sometimes there's a megaphone to remind us that All is not well with the human race. But we are not good listeners, are we? So let me beg you, please, to let God's megaphone rouse you so that you turn back to him and seek his mercy, which is freely offered to us in Christ Jesus. Before it's too late. For those of us who are still feeling just really uncomfortable with all this. I mean, who doesn't? I mean, who loves to talk about uh, coming judgment? But let us use the fact of judgment to move us to respond like Moses does here. Here we come to our fourth and final question. 
What should be our response to idolatry? Well, I think we can take huge inspiration from Moses' example as he firstly responds in intercession. He prays for the people. Do you see that in end of verse 12 there? He implores the Lord to turn from his burning anger and relent from this disaster. I mean, <laughs> it's incredible actually. Verse 14, guess what happens? The Lord does. He relents. God had every right to wipe out all of the Israelites. And yet we are told that he relents because of the prayers of one man. Prayer works, folks. It really works. When we pray in line with God's merciful character, our prayers don't just bounce off the ceiling and go nowhere. They actually go straight through to the very throne room of God. So will we pray at this time? This isn't just a time to hunker down and watch Netflix. We have no excuse not to pray anymore. So we must pray for our world, for our nation, for our colleagues, for our loved ones. We must pray for them to turn to God and be shown mercy. And then we must mirror Moses' second response, which is secondly, identification. Please look with me at verses 31 and verses 32, which I have to say are some of the most moving verses I find in the whole of Scripture. Verse 31, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, Please blot me out of your book that you have written. Uh, now Moses does get pretty worked up with the people when he comes down the mountain and finds out what's going on. He, he smashes uh, the um, uh, tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them. He does some rock smashing. We haven't got time to go into that just now. Uh, but I've got to say that some of us actually find it all too easy to respond more like that. We get, we get so worked up with what we see happening in the world around us and, and we can stand aloof and distant from the culture, condemning it from afar. But we mustn't. Alongside righteous indignation must come compassion for the society in which we live. And Moses, for all the rage that he demonstrates to the Israelites on God's behalf, he loves them. He really loves them. I mean, look at what he says here. If you will forgive their sin, but, but if not, please block me out of the book that you've written. He would rather see himself perish than them be destroyed. And so must we. You see, it's insecurity that drives people to idolatry. And they need the divine word that we have to, to find true security. And in its absence, if we don't communicate it, then they will be, as the Lord Jesus himself says, like sheep without a shepherd, turning to numerous idolatrous substitutes that do not deliver and destroy them. And it's heartbreaking to see that in our society. It's heartbreaking to see that at the moment. So cling to their idols in fear.
which is why we must pray and we must speak and we must live this we must do so as Moses did in fact we must do so as Jesus did because let's face it Moses as he steps into the gap here <laughs> he's doing so in a very Christ-like way he's pointing forward to Jesus and so we must do so in the Jesus way with compassion in our hearts and tears in our eyes let me pray that through for us now let's pray Exodus 32 verse 32 but now if you will forgive their sin but if not please block me out of your book that you have written our oh, father God we pray that you would give us the love and compassion that we see in Moses Please, please, Father, help us have that love that we'd rather perish ourselves than see the godless destroyed. Father, we, we've got to confess. We've got to tell you that we're a long way from that. So please give us that love. And then please help us to pray for these people and model and teach what it is to live without idols, to live under the security of your divine name. Please help us to do that. We cannot do that alone. Amen.